Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we're talking taxes, specifically clean energy tax extensions. Last December, we talked with Rhodium Group expert John Larson about why tax credits matter for clean energy technologies like CCS, biofuels, electric vehicles, and more. Congress ultimately did not come to a deal on these tax credits, but John shows that the clean energy tax extensions, whether this year or next, could help make serious inroads for decarbonizing the U.S. economy while supporting the domestic clean energy economy. Let's turn it over to Sarah Ladislaw and John Larson now. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you guys just came up with a note called, Can Tax Credits Tackle Climate? In it, you basically take a look at some of the tax extenders that are before Congress and the, at the potential for them to you know, get passed, and you think about what the impacts will be. And I just wanted to talk through some of that today because I think it's a really timely and important issue. But one of the things that you start off with in the report is a statement. You say a tax extenders package could represent this Congress's largest opportunity to advance clean energy and reduce emissions. For those of us who think about energy policy and particularly the role of Congress, tax extenders, tax incentives, always a big part of that conversation conversation, but no one really frames it in those terms, right? And so I'm just curious about why you all were thinking about it along those lines. I think the first thing to think about is, you know, it would be wonderful if Congress was actually contemplating a serious energy bill or a comprehensive climate policy or something else. That is not clearly in the cards in this Congress. And then in the meantime, the U.S. has had a long bipartisan history of supporting clean energy through the tax code Mm -hmm. on a variety of fronts. And many of those credits are uh, have actually expired or are on a sunsetting path now. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of those credits have uh, there are outspoken members of Congress on both sides that want to see them renewed and extended. And they could potentially make a dent in either, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or in, you know, cultivating, um, you know, important low carbon industries in the in America. So there seems to be at least a real conversation around what to do in that space. And the bipartisan nature of that shows that, like, or at least said to us that, well, this could actually be something that could move, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's less about like, well, you know, there's lots of things Congress could do, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. this is something that they might do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing too, is like, we've actually seen this movie before. There have been other rounds of bipartisan end of the year must pass attachments that extend tax credits and have actually been very important for select clean energy technologies in the past. And so it's not like, doing so again would be unprecedented. It's actually kind of a mm-hmm. normal thing every three to five years. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we were like, well, this could be the thing. Because right now, there's no movement on bigger energy packages um, on any front uh, that are likely to like get all the way to the president's desk, and then there's, the president has to sign it. right? So this, this seemed like the one thing that could potentially make a dent. Yeah. I want to get into what the particular ones are that you evaluate in the study in a second. But it's interesting to me that one, like muscle memory tends to matter, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Congress knows how to move these things in the context of other spending bills. And so it, it makes sense. But I do find it a little interesting that, you know, several years ago, when we were looking at other sort of packages of things like removing the oil export ban, and we found a way to do tax extensions there too, but but they were the sunsetted version of them. Like, it does seem that the politics around tax extenders has changed a little bit in mm-hmm. this Congress in that there was a real aversion to 
having these things go on forever. And now it's like, well, no, actually, maybe we'll bring some of them back and we'll do a little bit more of them. Why has that happened, do you think? Is it because there's a new combination of policies that, or, or technologies that are, are thought to be advantaged? Or is it just a recognition that, like, actually these things are kind of helpful? I think there's a few things going on. I think part of this is there are clean energy industries that have been built largely around the tax credits. And so, you know, once you've got something, you want to try and, and build, build your business around it. You want to keep it as long as you can. Uh, that does not necessarily mean these industries won't stand on their own eventually or even could do so now. But, you know, it's nice to have 30 yeah. percent off your capital costs. Uh, <laughs> so that's, I think, one thing. I think another argument is the idea, so like three years ago, I guess, there was this trade for like, you know, you extend a bunch of renewable energy tax credits and you lift the oil export ban mm-hmm. and, and you've got a deal, right? And the idea was that this is kind of the, the, the last time for mm-hmm. wind and solar, right? But I think there's an argument, at least from that corner of the universe, that, well, the idea was there would be a clean power plan or there would be some other proxy for climate policy that would give these industries the longer term certainty they need to really thrive. Sure. And that's not here, yeah. right? And so in lieu of that, let's talk about extensions. And then the last thing really is, is like there's a couple of credits that have expired a couple of years ago that very important members of Congress really, really want to see retroactively and then forward extended. Mm-hmm. And people see an opportunity to get what they want in addition to that as part mm-hmm. of a bigger deal, right? So they just they, they see a, a window opening and are trying to tack things on as part of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's dive in. Which ones in particular did you look at in this report and why are those the ones you picked? So the first thing I'll say is there, the array of clean energy tax credits in the U.S. tax code is, is, is large, diverse, and um, you know fascinating, and targeted a lot of different things, uh-huh. right? So we did not set out to assess everything. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten a lot of feedback since this came out about, well, why not? What you missed, Why right? not this? Why not that? And, and I appreciate that. I mean, it makes sense. So, so the first thing I'll say is that just because something's not in the note doesn't mean it's not important to somebody mm-hmm. um, or important to even clean energy in America, right? It's, it was more like... We, we have looked at this stuff for a long time, and we kind of looked at a political lens, like who's asking for these things? Mm-hmm. And from a, an impact lens, mm-hmm. based on our professional judgment, what are the big ticket items? Mm-hmm. And came up with a list of six categories of credits. Mm-hmm. So one is just like, is renewable energy tax mm-hmm. credits. So mm-hmm. this is the, the wind production tax credit, the solar investment tax credit, as well as the investment tax credit for offshore wind, and a few, few other things like distributed solar as well. Mm-hmm. Another is really um, a new idea that's in in Congress to expand the investment tax credit to allow operating costs and fuel costs for existing nuclear plants to qualify for uh, an investment tax credit. The next one is expanding the investment tax credit again to cover uh, energy storage equipment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another is the electric vehicle tax credit. And then biofuel tax credits, which is actually more than one. There's kind of a bucket of, of credits for, for biodiesel and things like that. And then finally, the 45Q carbon capture and utilization and storage tax credit. And so some of the people that are interested, like policymakers who are interested in this topic or, or, or people who listen to this podcast will be interested in like, in total, if we were to do these things, what could some of the expected impacts be? And you guys tried to approximate that in the study. We looked at each category in isolation. So there would certainly be some interactive effects across some of these that we did not quantify. Yeah. And so one reason for that was... There is no, and we can talk more about kind of the state of play today, but there, there is no package right now, mm-hmm. right? right? We, Rhodium Group, did not want to be gods of the energy universe and say, <laughs> here is the package, right? So we were like, let's, you know, as people deliberate what should be in that package, let's look at the individual, individual. impacts. Mm. 
So at the end of the day, if you did everything we looked at, ballpark, it's probably two or 300 million metric tons of emission reductions, which for context, that's, I don't know, three, four, five percent of current emissions mm-hmm. right now. I mean, which is, that's a dent with a, you know, hodgepodge of different things. You could, you could get some real change. Mm-hmm. And that's by like 2030 or so. But it's interesting. We found certain things have a real emissions benefit in the near future, like in this decade. Others, while they sound like they should, mm-hmm. don't necessarily get that emissions benefit, but but still do other things that one could argue are good for like getting the U.S. on a track for decarbonization. So mm-hmm. we did try to look at this through not just an emissions lens, but also a technology deployment lens. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you said in the report is that the cumulative impact of extending the tax credits could fill like, like 25% of the gap between U.S. emissions under current policy and its Paris uh, yeah. commitments, right? So yeah. that's a, a, that, that's a, like upper upper bound of what upper you could, bound of yeah. what you could expect, yeah. right? Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what you just mentioned, which is some of the themes coming out of this. Maybe if we could go through, you know, some of the bigger ones, like on the power sector in particular. You mentioned there was a perception in the sunsetting of renewable energy tax credits that they'd be able to stand on their own two feet, and quite frankly do in very yes. in a lot of contexts. It's always challenging for people because it's not like renewable energy can't compete on its own. It's just we're talking about doing something to the entire energy system that is changing it in a much more aggressive way than we typically think about the evolution of different kinds of technology, right? right. So that's right. also another thing that I think is important for context of thinking about why you would need a continued tax incentive for some of these low-carbon energy technologies, right? right? But you you mentioned that there were some sort of like counterintuitive things to think about on that side. What were those? One thing to think about, so looking at wind and solar, strictly, like, like you know, onshore wind and utility-scale solar, it's important to note that we looked at everything relative to the current tax code, current policy regime today, mm-hmm. right? So with the phases outs of the existing credits over the next several years, you're still building mm-hmm. a lot of wind and solar mm-hmm. in the near 20, early 2020s mm-hmm. under current policy, right? So the amount of new wind and solar you get through 2025 is relatively small mm-hmm. with an extended tax credit, simply because you're already building a lot, yeah. right? The benefit of an extension, and to get a little bit wonky for a second, when we say extension here, we looked at a five-year extension of the commence construction deadline for the credit. So, I mean, you could start building at a wind farm in 2025, mm-hmm. finish building it in 2028, and still get the credit. So that that's important to note here. It leads to a very large additional build-out of wind and solar into the late 2020s. Mm-hmm. So the emissions benefit of the renewable energy tax credit extensions is actually comes later than you might. It's just, it's not an overnight like, hey, we got more renewables and the emissions go down. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's already built in mm-hmm. um, under current policy. So you're, you're kind of just extending that trend in the longer run and getting uh, triple digit emission reductions out in 2030s, but a relatively small impact of 2025. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a surprise to us. It makes sense when you think about it. And the other thing to note on that is to your point about wind and solar have been doing great as new technologies in a commercial market, right? Um, but if we're going to actually decarbonize the electric power sector, we need to be going even faster. Yeah. And so what we find is basically the trends continue when you extend the tax credit. You're not actually accelerating even faster yeah. decarbonization. So that's just worth noting. Like, you know, this is not the same as a real climate policy or a clean energy standard or something. Mm-hmm. But it does get total electric power sector emissions to as low as a 48% cut uh, compared to 05 mm-hmm. 
by 2030, which is actually, you know, pretty remarkable. So that that's one thing to think about. Meanwhile, you get a lot more near-term emission reductions if you impose a ITC for nuclear O&M and fuel costs. Yeah. Uh, we see rhodium in our kind of annual projections of the energy markets. See, we're pretty bearish on the fate of nuclear. Cheap natural gas is just going to keep staying cheap. Renewables are cheap and getting cheaper. The growth of electric demand just isn't there. And so we see it like potentially up to a third of the nuclear fleet being gone by 2025 and up to two thirds or three quarters being gone by 2030. That is probably one of the scariest forecasts out there for nuclear out, uh, among the, the research community, but we think it's a real possibility. So when, when you use an investment tax credit to subsidize the operations of these plants, all of a sudden they become economically, you know, we assume they become economically competitive. We kind of looked at the like ballpark costs compared to the state subsidies, the zero emission credit programs that are out there, and they're, they're roughly comparable. So we felt pretty good about that assessment. But we saw that basically if you save all the nuclear that's at risk in our forecast through 2025, you get up to 125 million metric tons of emission reductions and you save th- up to 30 gigawatts. Wow. of nuclear retirements. And I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and it's a much bigger deal than the renewable credits in the same time frame. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you put them both together, you know, you could see things being additive uh, to some degree. But the, 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 the trick is the nuclear ITC, if you want those nukes to keep going after 2020, you got to extend the credit again. Or, or do something else, yeah. right, like clean energy. You need some other policy support yeah. for these plants. And just for clarity's sake, this is all about keeping existing plants open. This is yes. not a tax incentive or a program that in any way sort of incentivizes new build. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we at Rhodium do not see new nuclear coming on, other than the Vogel plant, mm-hmm. uh, any nuclear in the next decade. Yeah. The other big ticket one and and things that people are usually really interested in is on the EV side of the equation. Mm-hmm. What did you what did you see about the EV tax credit? So we we basically said let's say you extend the tax credit through 2025 for all the manufacturers. So there's no right now there's a cap on how many vehicles each you know, like GM can get the credit for and yeah. and Tesla uh, and everybody. And so we lift the cap and just say the credit's available to everybody through 2025. And it was pretty striking. We see potentially up to a doubling of EVs on the road mm-hmm. by 2025. Up to 7% of all vehicles on the road could be Just electric. Just by lifting the cap. Yep. Wow. Um, which is a pretty big impact for, for EVs. Yeah. Um, and it would come at a pretty important time. Uh, if you look at the pipeline of, like, product announcements, new models coming out, I mean, there's going to be – we had, like, I don't know, five major models last year. We're going to have 20 – coming out in 2020. Yeah. And then I think I heard something like by 2023, there's 130 models mm-hmm. out there. So, you know, all of a sudden consumers are going to have a lot of choices. There's going to be a lot more competition for the market, which should bring down costs. So it's a really interesting time. The leaders in the market are the ones that can't qualify for the credit anymore because they've hit the caps. So that's also interesting, uh, like Tesla and GM specifically. And doubling, yeah, doubling EVs on the road up to 7% of all vehicles is, is kind of a big deal. And we did ranges on all this stuff. But a big question mark is, like, how much are these EVs really going to cost? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, and that's independent of the credit. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, we have different, different pathways that EV costs could go. Uh, if we take the cheapest pathway, we get to that doubling outcome. Yeah. If EVs are a bit more expensive, then you still get a lot more EVs. You just don't get to that kind of outcome. It could be as low as four, four and a half percent of all vehicles on the road, but still more than you'd have under current policy. Mm-hmm. One of the things we didn't talk about when I asked you about the tax incentives that you looked at, we didn't we didn't talk about energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. You didn't include that 
Is there a reason? Only that we didn't see it, A, as like a quote-unquote big-ticket item for technology deployment. You know, I mean, efficiency is important. Yeah. It is under underinvested. There's a lot of literature about the barriers to greater energy efficiency. The credits will matter and make a difference to more investment in energy yeah. efficiency. I, let me just say that. Yeah. At the same time, we looked back at, like, the, the total impact of the credit previously. And it, I mean, it matters, but compared to the other numbers we're talking about, it's like single digit tons, maybe lower in on an annual basis. And so it's important to have in there. But that's the main reason why we didn't look at it. The other kind of main takeaway from the analysis is what this means for that like last bucket of, you know, technologies that you looked at, which is, you know, like biofuels and offshore wind and all of that. What role do you see the tax extenders playing for those uh, NCCS and, yeah. and those other technologies? You look at any long-term projection of what the U.S. or any major economy needs to do to decarbonize, and you're going to need clean fuels. You're going to need carbon capture and storage. You're going to need a diverse set of uh, electric power generation options, and there are tax credits that have uh, that are either in place or expiring uh, that incentivize all investment in all those things in the U.S. today. And these technologies, I mean, we've got five megawatts of offshore wind installed right now. I mean, it's very, very early days. I mean, you can count all the carbon capture projects on one hand in America. Uh, and then meanwhile, with biofuels, it's like there is a nascent and but operating advanced biofuels industry. It's mostly there to serve the California market because of the low carbon fuel standard. But they are stacking all the different values they can to get to profitability. So low carbon fuel standard credits, RIN credits under the renewable fuel standard, and then the federal credits. Mm-hmm. Turns out the federal credits make up at least 10% of their total revenue. Mm-hmm. And without them, they may not squeak by at all. And the U.S. has made a lot of investments to stand up that industry over the last five, 10 years. And uh, there's a there's a world where, you know, all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah, and, yeah. and so there's a lot of uncertainty around policy uncertainty around these key technologies and early stage deployment right now. Offshore wind, the current tax credit phases out this year. If you don't start construction by the end of December, uh, you're not getting any incentive. Uh, and there's, you know, may- meanwhile, there's gigawatts of projects on the drawing board. But then the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management just did a rewrite, you know, a, a pause on all development for-, for a permit review. So, you know, if I'm an investor, it's like, well, that, that means there's no way we're going to get the investment tax credit now. And I don't even know if I'll have a project. And so, uh, and then in the meantime, with CCUS, you got to start to get the 45Q tax credit. You got to commence construction by the end of 2023. These are big machines, first of their kind. Nobody's done them before. And in the meantime, nobody is going to secure financing for any of those projects until the IRS issues guidance on how to use the tax credit, which they have not done yet. And then, meanwhile, on the biofuels front, every RIN waiver, every obligation waiver that happens is just a blow towards the advanced biofuels industry. So on all these different fronts, there's different levels of uncertainty. Re-implementing and extending the key tax credits for these industries will provide some certainty in an uncertain world. I would not go on record and say it's going to make or break any of these technologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a lot of headwinds all of a sudden, and uh, a little extra support would, I think, go a long way. I think one of the things that feeds back into the political reality is like if you like the trends that you've been seeing in some of these sectors and you want to do something to at least put a, a floor underneath those, right? I mean, this is yeah. a really good and familiar way of doing that, which matters a lot in political negotiations. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, it's just worth noting, too, we spent a lot of time earlier talking about renewables, but 
you know, these technologies are, are bipartisan technologies. Everybody agrees politically that these are important. And so this this gets back to like why why we did we look at tax credits? Like, you know, they're like Chuck Grassley's the head of Senate Finance. He really cares about biofuels. That's one reason why we're having a conversation, yeah. you know, is <laughs> and so, you know, it's like people across the spectrum understand the value of these technologies and it's just a matter of, of finding a way to to get to yes on some support. This has been super helpful, but I want to ask you one question before we close is, I mean, you guys are an independent research firm. You, you know, study the world as it is. And, but I'm going to you know, ask, when you think about the world of tax credits and like what you would want that could actually make really big, potentially sizable differences that you didn't analyze because they're not quite as squarely on the table as these ones. Right. Like what would that be? The short answer is perfect world, you know, having some sort of tech neutral incentive Mm. that pays for performance, basically. The more car, the the lower your carbon intensity, the more credit you get Uh kind of uh idea is, I think, one that could go a long way in the in the absence of more comprehensive policy. Again, like, I mean, I think everybody, including myself, would be the ideal world is we price carbon and people figure it out. But in lieu of that um, or some other construct, you know, this could be one way to do it. I think it's worth noting People use that, throw that word around a lot, but don't appreciate that there's different flavors of tech neutrality. Tech neutrality uh, yeah. And yeah. and it really gets more into the like technology readiness conversation we were just having. So mm-hmm. so uh, Ron Wyden, who's the ranking member on finance, has a carbon neutral tax credit that's very much a, a deployment tax credit, like for commercial technologies. It's basically a wind PTC, solar ITC, but for everything that lowers emissions. And it's a, it's a really intriguing policy. You know, it would it would provide a clear incentive to more things like carbon capture on power plants, for example, which would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. It simplifies things a lot, too. It stays in place until emissions go down to a certain level. So, you know, it's like it, there's some certainty around a long term certainty around yeah. the availability. That's really intriguing. But it's really about technologies that are off the shelf and ready to go. There are a whole other suite of technologies of which we just talked about a bunch, CCUS, offshore wind, uh, you can make the same case for advanced nuclear, things like that, that those first few plants are going to be expensive. Mm -hmm. Even with that kind of commercial deployment incentive, you know, if I'm an investor, it's like, I'll just build another wind farm. Mm -hmm. Like, why would I, why would I put money on that? You know, and, and so there's another idea out there, actually, Tom Reed, who's on the, on Ways and Means, he's a a Republican from New York, Mm -hmm. has this bill, I forget the name of it, but the idea is basically you have a different flavor of tax credit that actually scales to the readiness of the technology, and readiness is is measured by market share. Interesting. So first of its kind, you get a 40% investment tax credit, which is quite lucrative um, for, you know, for the first two or three plants you would build of a new technology, Uh right, that improves greenhouse gas emissions, improves other environmental indicators, like things like that. And then after that, you get into like a PTC, ITC world Mm -hmm. um, that's like more reasonable, like more like what we see now, sort of like the widened thing. But that phases out to a zero credit once that technology's gotten a certain amount of market share. So the idea is you could apply this to all stuff, all all technology that's out there. So mature wind and solar wouldn't get anything in that world, but offshore wind would, advanced nukes would. And then, you know, the first few plants get X, the next few plants get a little less, and then it scales down to basically a world where you've now ideally bought down the cost of advanced nuclear, of natural gas, of CCS, of things like that, to the point where they are ready to compete against these other commercial technologies, and they're ready to join the suite of options yeah. on the table. Yeah. And that's, I think, really intriguing and might might probably be very important to have in place even 
in the presence yeah. of climate policy as opposed to as a as a replacement. Because you know, in a, under a carbon price, everyone's just going to invest in the stuff that works, yeah, right. and they're still going to be risk averse to the new stuff. So this this provides a really important lever that's worth looking at. That's interesting. So just a technical question: Are the widen and read bills complementary, or would? would yeah, I could see them as complementary. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they either of them <laughs> sells it that way. Yeah. But I, as far as like, how do we get new tech? And 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 I, I'll also say we're talking about the power sector only in this context. But uh-huh. you could you could uh-huh. see this idea. I mean, Wyden has a bill for transport fuels and other stuff. Um, or a different tax credit for, for other areas. But you could see other sector versions of these ideas. But yeah, no, I, I think it's like one, one credit helps get technologies to market. Yep. The next credit deploys them, deploys them yep. at scale, right? Like, and, and I actually think that the two together could work really well, especially if we don't have anything else. Yeah. Right? I mean, right. I, like it's, you know, and, you know, right now people are talking about tax credits to some degree, whereas, you know, we're, we're you know, carbon tax is always right around the corner. But I've heard that for a couple decades now. So <laughs> a lot of corners. But you know what I do? I think it's actually really interesting because, you know, we've been talking about innovation for the sort of duration of this Congress so far. There's clearly a lot of bipartisan support for it. And now I'm increasingly encouraged by, you know, more and more conversations on the Hill, people realizing that, like, innovation is not just about R&D. Senator Murkowski was here last week and she punctuated this, you know, a lot saying we have to have some deployment strategies. And Senator Cornyn was here this morning saying the same thing. So I think it is really important to think about how do you complement basic R&D dollars and uh, with with strategies to make sure that technologies are making into the market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, innovation isn't just inventing new stuff. It's making it cheap. Yeah. And making it work at scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, John, you guys always do such a great job. We're really pleased to be able to, you know, have you here on the podcast and have you as a, you know, affiliate to the program. I always learn a ton from talking to you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to John for joining us this week. We have a link in our bio to the research John and his team at the Rhodium Group have done on clean energy tax credits. I encourage you to check it out. And of course, check out the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS for more about our work. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy and find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for listening.